Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm Ryan Coonerty. Along with Debbie Cox Bolton of the New Deal, I'm lucky enough to be your co-host. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports the next generation of American leaders. From attorneys generals, to state senators, to mayors, to school board members, these are the people that are pushing policies and politics that will respond to climate change, rebuild our economy, address racial injustice, and restore our democracy. These are incredibly talented people who have dedicated themselves to public service when their country and their communities needed it the most. Check out newdealleaders.org to see what I'm talking about. 2024 looks to be the year of Michigan. It's a swing state with a narrow Democratic majority. The policies it pursues will be models for other states looking to shift to green energy, protect choice, increase jobs and wages, as well as protect democracy itself. The leader at the center of so many issues will be Michigan Senate Majority Leader Winnie Brinks. She's an unlikely politician. Raised on a dairy farm, she lost her dad when she was only six years old. She served her community professionally and as a volunteer, but never ran for office until she took on an incumbent who switched parties at the last moment. Since then, she's dedicated herself to shaping policy that provides a safety net for families and effective programs to serve communities. Enjoy. Michigan Senate Majority Leader, Winnie Brinks, welcome to An Honorable Profession. It's great to join you. Thank you so much for having me. So I got to say, I was listening to this podcast. They had an influencer fashion person on talking about what's big in 2024. And sort of surprisingly me, and I think to the host, she was like, Michigan. Michigan is where it's at in 2024. <laughs> it just feels like a Michigan kind of year. And then it starts with a national championship and you are ground zero for politics in this country. So how are things in Michigan? right now, as you are the place that 2024 will be defining? Yeah, we really felt like we were the place already in 2023, you know, and we won the trifecta and we just got to work immediately on a a whole bunch of pent up policy priorities that we hadn't been able to get to. So it's really fun that we're still in the spotlight and we intend to make good use of that attention and make it worth watching. Let's talk about 2023 because As you said, Michigan, you had the Democrats had control of both chambers and the governorship, and you really put that to use. Can you talk about some of the highlights of how you delivered for the folks in your state? Yeah, for sure. We immediately got to work on things that we had been working on in the minority unsuccessfully for so many years, and in some cases, decades. So, you know, everything from advancing and affirming individual rights for LGBTQ plus folks and on the issue of choice to revamping our energy policy for the state to working on growing our economy, increasing tax fairness. We accomplished gun safety legislation. So we just got right to work immediately doing those things that we had been talking with our constituents, going door to door, hearing about repeatedly for so long. And as soon as we ungerrymandered Michigan, we had that opportunity with those majorities that we were able to get in that previous election. So we were very excited, wasted no time. And now we're getting even more stuff done this year. Can you talk a little bit about the Michigan Clean Energy Act? 
you know, obviously that your state has a long tradition of innovation and manufacturing. And what does this mean for the future of your state and frankly, as a model for the rest of the country and world? Yeah, we're really proud of the work that we did on the energy policy package that we passed late last year. It was a lot of work. But we spent tons and tons of hours working with stakeholders, working with other legislators, working with the governor's office and with the House to ensure that we could get really solid energy policy through. We set an ambitious goal of having 100% clean energy by 2040. And that's a, a pretty ambitious goal for any state. But that makes us a leader in the nation as well as not just the Midwest, which is one of the measures that we often use. And to be able to do that with such slim majorities in the House and in the Senate as a purple state, we felt was quite an accomplishment. So we're really pleased about the direction we're moving, not just for our environment, but also for the health of people. And we also did it in a way that takes into account the future of workers that may be displaced as we make significant changes toward a cleaner energy future. So as you just mentioned, you had a slim majority in the last session Going into this session, you have a tie in the Michigan State House, still under Democratic control, but obviously even slimmer majorities. How is that going to impact your legislative strategy for this year? Yeah, that's a great question. So there have been special elections called for those two districts that we need to fill yet. Those are very likely going to be refilled by Democrats, and that will bring us back to our original number over in the House of 56 Democrats and 54 Republicans. But as you say, still a very slim majority. So every time we talk about moving policy through the legislature and getting it to the governor's desk, we need to be sure that we can get every single Democrat to vote for that if it's something that's one of those issues that isn't going to garner bipartisan support. So at this point in our realities of getting votes, we will probably be looking at doing some things that are bipartisan in nature for the first few months of the year until those seats are filled. And we have plenty of opportunities to work on really important issues that I think will garner bipartisan support. So we'll be doing some economic and community development things. I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to move some prescription drug affordability legislation and do some other things that would be really helpful for our constituents, help lower costs for them, but also just find ways for us to work together on really good, solid policy for our state. So in my experience, being a legislator is hard. Being a legislative leader is even harder. <laughs> you got to set the priorities where people have, often have a lot of competing interests and, and, and values. What's your strategy coming in to hold your caucus together and to deliver on some of these things for Michiganders? You know, for me, it's always been really important to have strong relationships with both folks in your own caucuses as well as on the other side of the aisle. And I think that that results in the best legislation and the best policy, if you can have honest conversations with each other, acknowledge differences, but really find ways that you can work together. If you can identify a common goal, that's always incredibly important and very, very helpful. Sometimes when there isn't a common goal and things become much more partisan, that can be difficult, but to really behave in an honest and forthright way, I think has been really helpful. Occasionally, I've had to go over and say to my Republican 
Republican counterpart, I know you're not going to like this, but we are willing to try and work with you throughout the process to make sure that you're well informed. And if there is something that you're asking of us to do, we'll consider it. And sometimes that's the best you can do. But I find that you get a much more respectful relationship between uh, the parties if you do it that way. But within our caucus, I think we've managed to establish really positive bonds. I think we actually care about each other as professionals. We respect that we each come from different districts and have different priorities based on that. We each have our own personal story of how we got into politics and what issues we feel most strongly about. And so really knowing each other and taking the time to talk to each other about what's important to us has made for really effective relationships. And at the end of the day, being able to put something bigger than our own individual interests or district interests in front of our caucus and ask for their support has been something that's worked really well for us. You have a remarkable personal story, and we want to, I want to talk about that in a second. But I, was, I want to first start with that, as you say, a challenging issue that requires bipartisan work, which is a free and fair election. And the Republican Party in Michigan has played a role in some serious election denial and misinformation. What does it look like in 2024 for the administration of both your state elections, but also the federal election? Yeah, this is such an important issue. And we recognized that immediately upon winning the trifecta here that we were in a very unique position to be able to ensure the integrity of our elections. We looked at what had happened in the previous presidential election where Donald Trump tried to recruit these false electors and really undermine the results of the election and the early voting and absentee voting. So we closed a lot of those loopholes or those things that they tried to exploit as gray areas, even though it was clear what the right thing was. So we took that on immediately in our Elections and Ethics Committee. We passed a couple of packages of bills that would ensure greater access to the ballot box through early voting, through no reason absentee, through drop boxes. We also made sure that the selection of those electors and how they report the results of the election through the Secretary of State's office was shored up. So there was no question who those electors are the proper electors, as well as making sure that those results are communicated clearly to the folks in Washington, D.C., and that there's no opportunity to exploit that process for someone's political gain, despite what the voters say. So for us, it was really about making sure that the will of the voters was respected, that every vote counted, and that as many eligible voters were given the opportunity to vote as easily as possible. That's welcome news and not the case, unfortunately, as we know, in in all states. As we know, democracy is both about rules and administration. It's also about norms. Are you seeing a place where we can get back to just a basic idea that we should all live in a democracy and respect elections and whatever the outcome? You know, I'm hopeful that we'll get back to that. I'm really, as an individual, tired of the perpetual manufactured crisis that we see. And I'm really hoping that the general public sees the benefit of 
going back to a world or a reality where it's normal to participate in democracy and to trust the results and to understand uh, that the people that we've put in charge of administering our elections are actually very good at their job. And here in Michigan, they're elected from a partisan perspective and clerks all over our state, rural, urban, you name it, both parties have just done an excellent job for the most part in administering elections. And I would hope that the people who are served in those communities would understand that and get back to the point where they used to be, where they would trust that they were doing things in a way that has integrity, that was honest, and that no matter what the results were, even if you're a Democrat or Republican and it didn't go your way, that they would uphold those through the law and respect the will of the voters. So I'm optimistic that we can get back there, but I think you have to be a little bit optimistic to do this work. (laughs) And so I hope that it's realistic to be that optimistic, but we will see, right? We'll see. You do have to be optimistic, perhaps delusionally so at times. Can you talk about how you found yourself in this position in elected office and how your personal life experiences have shaped what you do now that you've gotten there? Sure. Back in 2012, I received a phone call that the fellow who was state representative at the time in my district had switched parties at the last second on the filing deadline. And that left us without a genuine Democrat on the ballot. He had recruited somebody who was not really politically active, who didn't know what he was doing to file to run as a Democrat so that he wouldn't have any legitimate competition. So the whole thing just stunk, right? Back then, you wouldn't hear the words election is rigged, but that was really an attempt on their part to set this up so that he would have a walk toward re-election again after switching parties, after being dishonest with his voters and with his donors and with his colleagues and even his family. And so it was just all the things that you don't like about politics. And so I get a phone call from a friend of mine who was the chair of the congressional district Democrats at that time. And I said, I cannot believe what that guy did. Who are you going to get to run against him? (laughs) She said, well, I'll get straight to the point. We want to do it. My first response was, I don't know how to run for office. I've never done that. And she said, we'll help you. So that's the short version of the story. But I'm an unlikely politician. I came out of the PTA, which is how I knew that friend. And so I'm no stranger to hard work. I grew up on a dairy farm. I've worked my entire career in nonprofits and education. I had been politically active on the topic of education. I had gone to visit my state representatives and senators and talked to them about about education funding and education policy. But beyond that, I was, you know, simply somebody who listened to the news and tried to stay informed and be a responsible, normal citizen. But when I got that phone call, I thought, well, I might lose, but how often do you get an opportunity to actually make policy? So I took that experience that I had working in nonprofits and education. I had worked in community-based corrections. I had worked in workforce and talent development. I worked in horticulture therapy. So I just had this unique set of experiences. I worked in K through 12 schools. So I had seen how state government can work really well for some people and for some systems like 
to a certain extent, the K through 12 system, and in some occasions, the criminal justice system, not always, but I had seen how people can interact effectively with the system and it with them in times when it just doesn't work very well at all. So I bring those experiences with me to the state capitol every day, and it's been an unlikely turn in my career, but one that I have just enjoyed an incredible amount. It's a ton of work, of course, but I'm here for it. And it's just a fantastic privilege to be able to contribute to my community in this way. So yeah, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, it is exciting. And, and when you read your biography, you, you do have this wide ranging experience of really community-based service. I'm wondering, how do you translate what you've seen on the ground at a, at a really personal level, right, uh, in the classroom or community corrections to big state policy where it's often, you know, you're making policy at 10,000 feet for the whole state. Yeah, that's really kind of the art of what we do. A lot of people will send us an email and say, why don't you just pass my suggested policy and it'll all work out. And it's never that simple, right? You always have to look at things through the perspective of what you've learned, managing those big systems, funding those systems, helping make sure that there's adequate people to operationalize the ideas that are in bills, making sure that you can pay for it on an ongoing basis. So all of that is informed by my career, but it's also when you look at sort of the big broad strokes and the values that I bring to the job, I think it goes back to my childhood. You know, I'm the child of immigrant parents. I grew up on a farm. I had the misfortune of having my father die when I was six years old. And I also have a brother who is extremely disabled, so needed complete care. So here I had Republican-leaning parents who really worked incredibly hard Yet there were things outside their control that made it almost impossible to make ends meet and to really have a healthy, happy, normal family life and to survive economically. So for me, when I look back, I think about that basic safety net that we really needed with Social Security to help, you know, my mom raise us five children until we got to be adults and could start supporting ourselves. That monthly amount of income that she got from the federal government was incredibly helpful. And without that, we may have lived in poverty. You know, the support that my brother got for his entire life, medical care, supervision, all of that was incredibly important for the rest of us to be able to go off and pursue our careers. And for my mom to be able to run her business and to do something other than be taking care of him 100% of the time. So those are all part of how I formed what is the role of government in individuals' lives. And, you know, I think most people would agree, we don't want government involved in every little aspect of our worlds, telling us what we can and cannot do. But we do want to know that when we work hard and do the best we can and do the right things for our kids, that there is a bit of a safety net there for those things that are beyond our control. So when I look at our situation here in Michigan now, when we talk about economic and community development, it's more than about just creating more jobs and getting that headline. It's really about doing things that help support the people who live in our communities, who will hopefully move here and grow our state and take those great jobs. So we need that too. But it's also about providing ways to ensure that there's good childcare 
making sure our K through 12 schools are adequately supported and our kids have food to eat, you know, breakfast and lunch at schools at no cost to families is a huge way to support them. We're having conversations about paid family leave right now. That would make a world of difference for people who are in the situation that my mom was in when I was a child. Affordable prescription drug medications. It's an incredibly important thing to almost every household. So all of those things really come together for me when I think about my entire history from my childhood to my career to my work now in public policy. I'm so grateful you I mean, you shared both your story and that vision of sort of the way that government can be that safety net, but then also provide opportunity in these in these small and big ways for people to overcome the challenges that are often too present in our lives. Yeah. When you ran for office, not having served in office before, but jumped in against an incumbent, how did you find the electoral process? How have you found it since for all those who are sitting at home being like, well, I've never run for anything. I'm not sure I should. Give us a little insight into the good and bad of that. Well, it's interesting. I'm not sure that everybody should run for office either. (laughs) It is certainly an interesting line of work. I like to say there's no job quite like it. I don't know any other job where you really have to go out and just talk to people, just talk to people about what's important to them. And it doesn't matter what it is. It could be anything. And you literally walk up to that front door, you knock on it and you say, how can I help? And so you know, you have to have an appetite for that. And that's not something that everybody wants to do. You also have to be willing to really dig into things that you know very little about. And so you have to be willing to learn a lot. And I like to say it's never boring. There's always a new topic. But if you're not a curious person by nature, this might be a bit of a stretch for you. And the other thing I would say is that You should be an expert in something that you can bring to the table to benefit your colleagues, but you don't have to be an expert in everything. Nobody possibly can be. So that learning instinct is really important. Now, I'm already forgetting the whole question that you asked, but I think for me, going into politics was a way that I could take all of my experiences and the stories and anecdotes and the struggles that people had to the policymaking table and really see if my colleagues would listen to those experiences and having the varied experiences that I had in the human services field, I think is something that you don't often see in politics. It used to be, you saw a lot of lawyers. We see fewer of those now, probably because the pay isn't great, but there's sort of what a lot of folks would consider the ideal resume for a politician with military service or business or you name it. And I didn't really check all of those boxes, but my voice wasn't present in important rooms. And so for me now to be able to look back on the trajectory of my career and the ways that it prepared me for this work now is pretty incredible to me. So while I just said it's not for everyone, don't count yourself out if you don't look like the typical politician, because there's a lot of room for those diverse voices there. And that's proven out in the diversity of the caucus that we have now and all of the firsts that we've been able to achieve here in Michigan over the last year. Yeah. I mean, I agree. As you said, both when you bring those life experiences you've had to the table, but also, as you said, when the state funds these programs, whether it's K through 12 or community corrections or economic opportunity programs, 
the execution of those programs on the ground is what's going to make the difference. And so when you can bring that experience into the policy world, that's invaluable. So I'm glad that there are more people with your background entering government, and hopefully there will be more in the future. Wrapping up, I mean, I think Michigan will play a, a decisive role in who is elected president of the United States, and that could have consequences across not only our country, but in fact, the whole world right now. Can you give all those listening a sense of where you think the politics are in your state right now and how things look? Yeah, we moved our presidential primary up so it's earlier in the process. I know there's probably some listeners who aren't thrilled that we are jumping the line, so to speak, in their mind. But there are some really great reasons for making Michigan voices more prominent in how we pick, in particular, our president. I think we have a state that's a purple state. It's one of those states that determines who wins presidential elections. And so for us to be closer to the front of the line in terms of that conversation, I think is really going to be good for Michigan, but mostly good for our nation. So I'm excited about that. Here in Michigan, the Republican Party is in utter chaos as an institution. And so we'll see what kind of impact that has on their ability to really mobilize here. But the MAGA forces have really taken over the grassroots of the party as well as the leadership of their political apparatus. And so as much as that puts us at a political advantage, it's really kind of a sad day for democratic values that we share as a nation. So they're not very functional, but we cannot take that for granted because they've been kind of radicalized. And in some ways, it would be better if they were at least organized in a loyal opponent, you know, or the, the loyal opposition. Is that what they say? But it does provide us with an opportunity. And our state party apparatus is in great shape. We've got positive leadership. We have excellent congressional candidates. So that will help us this coming year. We've got a U.S. Senate race that's going to be key to the U.S. Senate balance of power. So I think you'll see a lot of news coming out of Michigan. I think we have a lot of great things to run on from the Biden administration and those priorities that we've seen for the economy, for clean energy, and so many more things, as well as this incredible amount of policy we were able to get through the state legislature and signed by Governor Whitmer last year. So I think we're in a great position to make our case and to win next year. So I look forward to watching and making the news right here in Michigan. Well, I'm going to knock on wood just to make sure we support your efforts in every way we can. I want to thank you. It's been a pleasure having you on. It's a pleasure having you as part of New Deal. We have a great representation in the New Deal from Michigan representatives, and you all do a great job of not only leading in your own state, but creating models for other states to follow. And so thank you for all you do. Well, thank you. That's a lovely compliment. And I love my New Deal colleagues here in Michigan, and I love participating with the New Deal programs. So I always learn a lot. So thank you for having me on. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. Thanks to the team at New Deal for producing this episode. We encourage you to bring honor to public service. And because we keep things honorable, no tax dollars are used in the making of this podcast.